We've been in the book of Acts. Today we are in chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We will read from verse 1 all the way through verse 31. Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through 31. People of God, hear the word of the Lord. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined it to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Jesus himself taught us that you seek worshipers to worship you in spirit and truth, which tells me that we did not come here today to get your attention, but that you gathered us here today to get our attention. We are the ones whom you have sought and gathered, uh, assembled to hear your word. So, Father, you have our attention. Please speak um, plainly to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. I'm only going to apologize once uh, for <clears throat> the clearing of the throat and the, uh, the difficulty I'm going to have speaking. The, the flu apocalypse has gone through our house this week. Uh, I am technically not uh, contagious anymore uh, as of Friday, so fear not. Um, <clears throat> but I'm still dealing with the effects of it. If I apologized every time, uh, it would be um, difficult to continue. So uh, let's get this party started. Now, last week, Mike walked us through the, um, the healing of a man who had been, um, who had been without the use of his legs for 40 years. And this was an astonishing miracle. And this week, what we're going to see is the consequences of that action uh, as our apostles are taken into custody and tried before the religious authorities. Now, that's just the narrative, but embedded in this story is the very life purpose of the church of Jesus Christ. And the church through all the ages has always been on the brink of forgetting it. And if we forget it, then we might as well close up shop and eat and drink and be merry because we have no other reason to exist there, there's, there's something that the church does, that the Christian church does, that no other <clears throat> body on the planet does. That's not community. It's not like a sense of belonging to one another. Like lots of civic-minded religious organizations have that. If, if you just want to belong somewhere, you know, you could be a, a Muslim or, or a Hindu. Or, I mean, we all have these religious communities. It's not belonging. That's not the thing that the church does, although we do that. It's not morality. We do have a code of morality. We do have a system of laws and, and, and doctrines, and, and all of them we praise and we love. Um, <clears throat> but there's a lot of good moral laws in the world that don't belong to the Christian faith. Like, and if everybody followed them, it would probably be a good world, um, a better world anyway. 
That's not our main thing. The church has all those things, but the one thing that the church of Jesus Christ does that no other entity on this planet does is to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody else does that. If we don't do this, no one will. And it is precisely here that the church has always encountered its fiercest opposition. So how do we keep going? Like, like John and Clark up here. How do we keep going in the face of opposition? And that's what this text tells us. So first we're going to see that opposition to the gospel is always to be expected. Number two, we're going to see that in the face of that opposition, we must continue to bear witness. And third, we'll see the resources that we need to do so. Opposition, always to be expected. Number two, we must continue to bear witness. And number three, what are the resources that we need to do this? So first of all, opposition should always be expected. As I already mentioned, last week, Peter and John healed a man who had been unable to walk for 40 years. And this little act got them into some serious trouble with the powers that be. And the first thing we should see in the passage that I just read to you at length is the people that it names. So the apostles were preaching in the temple, and then we get the following folks showing up. Verse 1, the priests the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Now, you don't really need to know the function of all these folks and how they operated in that day. All you really need to know is that these were the people who were in charge of the entire religious complex of ancient Jerusalem. And it tells us in verse 2 that they were, quote, greatly annoyed And the word here indicates something like total exasperation. Um, And why were they exasperated? Well, Luke gives us two reasons. In verse 2. Because they, that's the apostles, were teaching the people. And two, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Okay. So by teaching... The people, the apostles, are challenging the authority of the religious structure. That's first. By proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, they are challenging the doctrine of the established religious authorities. So they're challenging the authority, and they're challenging the doctrine. And you don't have to know much to know that when you try to challenge those two things, especially in a religious environment, things are not going to go well for you. People are bound, I would say, to get greatly annoyed. And what do they do with this annoyance? Well, they put, verse 3, Peter and John in prison. And the next morning, they're going out to put these two troublemakers on trial. And at this point, interestingly enough, we get even more names. Verse 5, and on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who are of the high priestly family. Okay, this is a big deal. This trial 
is, is astonishingly important. There's a representative here from what seems like every part of the religious establishment, and they cannot abide these men challenging their authority and trying to overturn their doctrine. They cannot have it. They must be stopped. And let's just be clear. All the authorities gathered here have a staggering amount of power, okay? Many of these folks, you may recognize some of those names because many of these folks were the same folks present at the trial of Jesus, and we know what they did to him. Okay, so this is, this is astonishing. They, they have an astonishing amount of power. They can put Peter and John to death, and if they want to, they can put Peter and John to a torturous death. So basically what they say is, you and you, under pain of death, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. It's our job to teach. It's our job to arrange and guard doctrine. You must stop. Now, We'll get to their response in a moment, but let's pause and try to recognize what we've been taught already. And it's this, that the message of the gospel will be opposed. The message of the gospel will be opposed. This is a reality that we should always expect but what's strange, I don't know if you're like me, what's strange is that we don't expect it. Now, whether it's because, you know, we as Americans believe, you know, we live in a Christian nation or at least one that was founded on Christian principles and therefore there shouldn't be any opposition uh, because it would go against our principles or whatever it is, <clears throat> we simply don't expect that the gospel in our culture will be opposed. But... If that's you, then let, let's hear from Peter in his first letter. This is First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, which tells me they were surprised at the fiery trial. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Opposition is not strange. Opposition is the way it goes. What's strange is if we should find ourselves in a place with no opposition. Or from Paul, 1 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, <clears throat> all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or even from Jesus himself. himself. He says in John 15.20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will, not may, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Now, some of us American Christians get really wound up over certain laws that are passed, and we're shocked that any legislation could be passed that would be contrary to the values of the kingdom of God, to which I say, why? 
Do not be surprised. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A servant is not greater than his master. And by the way, disagreeable legislation is about the least manner in which we could suffer. And some of you, I know, to click it up a few notches, some of you I know are battling powerful sickness, even unto death. And Jesus, and the scriptures would say to us, do not be surprised. Some of you have been cut off from your families. Do not be surprised. Some of you have lost jobs for the sake of the faith. Do not be surprised. As if something strange were happening to you. The good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will always, in all cultures, in all times, be opposed. So we should expect opposition. Point number two, in the face of opposition, what do we do? We must keep bearing witness. If we don't, who will? Now maybe the most wonderful thing that happens in this whole story is Peter and John's response to the gag order. Um, When the hammer of opposition crashes down upon them, what do they do? Verse 19 and 20. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, is that not astonishing? Okay, they say in essence, you elders have authority over us as our elders, but there is one of a higher authority and it is to him that we answer. When your commands and his commands conflict, we go with our Lord every time. We will not be silent for our Lord has commanded us to speak. And by the way, it wasn't just naked duty for them, right? I mean, this is like, it sounds almost involuntary. We can't help. We can't help it. There's a fire in the bones. It must have vent. It must come out. We cannot help ourselves. We must speak of it. Okay. So if they're going to continue to speak the message of the gospel in the face of opposition, we also need to be clear about what the message is that they're proclaiming. And we see that in verse 10 through 12. Let it be known, Peter says, to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the message of the gospel. Christ died. Christ was raised. And forgiveness of sins is offered to all who believe in his name. There's no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. If we don't say that, 
No one else will say that. That mantle belongs to us. Now, let me address uh, a couple of different groups here who may be listening to this. First, the non-Christians, if you are here. There's no amount of uh, wiggling or soft pedaling I can do to soften Peter's message here. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. If you've ever wondered why Christians seem so intent on the belief that Christ is the only way of salvation, well, now you know. Jesus taught us to say that, and our apostles taught us to say that. So whether it's right in your sight for us to listen to our Lord or to our culture, you must decide. As for us, we are going to say that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Now, I know this kind of thing is offensive to modern sensibilities. I understand that. If you're here and that's you, you actually deserve a lot more um, consideration on this topic than I'm about to give you. Uh, But I do have to finish the rest of this passage. But I I do want to say one thing. You may look at me and say, um, and hear me saying uh, that there is no other name by which we are saved. And you may think I'm wrong and ignorant. Maybe maybe at best. Maybe those are the kind words. Uh, Wrong and ignorant. You, on the other hand, may believe that a person is saved, whatever that may mean, um, self-actualized, whatever. You, you may believe that a person is saved by any name. Some of the more important ones are like you know, the Buddha or, or Krishna or Muhammad or, or whatever. By any name. And therefore, you are right and enlightened. I'm wrong and ignorant. You are right and enlightened. But I'll say two things. First, um, don't, don't let it pass by you that we're actually doing the same thing to each other in, in having that little discussion. Um, if, if we label my view A and your view B, what I'm saying is my view A is right and view B is wrong. But what you're saying is that view B is right and view A is wrong. So we're both looking at each other and saying something is right and something is wrong. Okay? So... We're both excluding each other. I'm not the exclusivist and you're the inclusivist. We're both excluding each other. So please don't assume um, that I'm the only one saying that there are wrong views of spirituality in this world. We all do that. Maybe you will grant me that, and I thank you. But you may then further object. At least I'm more generous in my exclusion Right? You, you, take, you take your little Christian pie, and you're like, that, that slice is so thin. There's no other name. It's, it's just this little slice, and everybody else is sunk. <clears throat> At least I'm the rest of the pie. Like, like all I'm excluding is that little slice. <clears throat> and maybe it's true that you're more generous in your exclusion than I am, but I will do my best to bear the burden of that offense and remind you that a person who is six foot five inches 
is no closer to grasping a star than the person who is four feet. Okay, so moving on. Um, Okay, now to address the second group of people, um, Christians. Here we are. Uh, I hope there are a few of you in here. Now, what this text teaches us is that we must use words to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I know some of us don't like to use our talky-talky parts when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. What this text tells us is that we must. Um, now, I've, uh, I've heard a lot of people, not here, but you know, in, in general, um, use that, that uh, line from St. Francis of Assisi, you know, the one, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I'm sorry, I can't help but laugh. Um, <clears throat> first of all, St. Francis of Assisi never said that. None of his biographers ever found that in any of his letters or documents. Um, second of all, it entirely contradicts the scriptures. Now, what I assume that whoever said that, what I assume they meant was that our deeds must match our words. And that's true. That's good. We'll stick that on the shelf and, and keep that one. But biblically, listen, everybody, okay, everybody listen. Everybody who was like freaked out at what those two were saying up here, like that can't be me. Okay, listen, listen. <laughs> deeds can never replace words. They cannot Right, John goes and he goes to the gym and he's like a really nice guy to everybody because Christ has made him a nice guy uh, and he's generous and he helps and he, you know, oh yeah, let me help you clean that up. That's fine. You know what? If there are no words, do you know what people think about him? That's a nice guy. That's it. That's a nice guy. Now, all right, let me think about the phrase. (laughs) Think about this phrase. Five words, get it in your mind. Christ died for our sins. Okay, Christ died for our sins. Get that in your mind. And let's look at the two components of it. First of all, first two words, Christ died. That is an act, right? Christ did that. It is a redemptive act of God. The last three words, for our sins, is the verbal interpretation of that act. Follow? Okay. So Christ died, the act, for our sins, the verbal interpretation of that act. Now, here's what's interesting. If you had been there on the day when Christ died, and you saw the act taking place, you you could have understood the first part of that phrase. Christ died. A man named Jesus, who calls himself Christ, has died on a cross. You would know that. But you would never have understood, just standing there and observing this crucifixion, you would never have known in a million years what that act meant unless somebody had told you. Now, now think of this. Okay, let me, let me keep going. Um, isn't that what the entire Bible is? Right? God in history has acted. He created the world. He chose 
Abraham. He gathered a nation around him so that he could have his own people in this world. He delivered the law. He established a physical kingdom. He exiled his people. He brought the Lord Jesus Christ, his own son, into this world to live according to the law. Then at the end of his life, he died for the forgiveness of sins, and then he was raised. All of that long stretch of redemptive acts And you and I would never know anything about them unless God had opened his mouth and told us what they mean. Maybe we would have been saved by Christ's work, but we never would have known about it. We would have just gone on with our lives and and not returned to give him thanksgiving at all because we wouldn't have known unless he said something to us. So if God himself must use words to interpret his acts to us, so must we. The the place in which we live, the people whom God has put in our lives will never know the divine acts of God, not only the major ones like the crucifixion and the resurrection, but even the minor ones like having you in their lives They will never know what that means unless we say it and use words. And if we don't say it, who will? If we don't say it, they won't hear it. Now finally, third, what resources do we need to bear witness? Now, all of this about verbal proclamation might terrify you. I don't know. Um, But the risen Christ has not left his people without the resources to carry out his commands. And, And the way that each individual or group verbalizes this message may be different. Now, the, the content is the same, but the way we say it may be different. <clears throat> Um, But what remains the same for all of us is that we all must have the same things in order to proclaim it. We must have the right perspective, we must have the, the power, and we must have boldness, okay? Perspective, power, and boldness. Now, number one, perspective. If we're gonna do this, we have to understand the perspective. Now, if we're gonna proclaim the message of the gospel, Um, and if we can be assured that the message will be opposed, then we need to first come to terms with where that opposition is coming from. If we're going to speak this message and we can be assured that it's going to be opposed, we need to come to terms with where that opposition is coming from. So in in our story, after they've given the gag order, Peter and John are released. And when they find their people again, happen to be in a prayer meeting, they go to prayer and then listen to how they pray. Okay, listen. Starting in verse 24. When they heard it, that's the, the account of their release. And when they heard it, 
they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, (coughs) Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. Four, verse 27. Truly in this city, listen, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The first thing we notice is that the opposition has been expected from the ages. Okay, King David in Psalm 2 has already written about it. That's the quotation here. Why do the Gentiles rage? The kings of the earth set themselves against your anointed. And then we see the answer to our question, what's the source of our opposition? The source of the opposition is God himself. Whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. It was God who gathered Herod and Pilate and set them up against Jesus. It was God who in the councils of eternity past decided that his son must suffer and die for the forgiveness of the people's sins. Now, I don't have time to get into how all of that works. In fact, I don't know. So um, we'll just leave it there. It's a mystery. Um, All I know is this. And if you were to embrace this, if if all of us as, as... sons and daughters of our father were to embrace this, here's what we would know. We would never need to fear anything that comes from the hand of our father. We never need to fear anything that comes from the hand of our father. If we are opposed, then it is because our father sees fit that we are opposed. Opposition is always a new invitation to bring our cause and ourselves back into his presence. Okay, so we have to have the perspective. Secondly, we have to have power. Now, I'm short on time, so let me be brief. Uh, Did it ever occur to you, (laughs) as we were reading this, um, did it occur to you that this set of authorities uh, was in many cases, the exact same people that made Peter, at the trial of Jesus, that made Peter shake and tremble and deny his Lord. And here he is with boldness saying, I don't care what happens to me so long as the message of Christ's resurrection and salvation in his name goes forward. It's a complete reversal. And how do we account for that? What has changed? I can tell you one thing that has not changed. Peter didn't go to seminary and like learn all the stuff or like a training thing and like learn things. In fact, it actually says 
Uh, in verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John <clears throat> and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. You know what the difference was, don't you? Peter had been filled with the Spirit of God. And it is the Spirit who provided all the power and the eloquence that he needed. I mean, we all live in a culture that prizes academic excellence and achievement. But the paradox here is that in order to proclaim the message of the gospel, you don't need to know a lot of things. You don't have to have a lot of letters. You only need to believe that Christ died for your sins, he was raised for your justification, and that he will fill you with the same power with which he filled Peter all those years ago. Perspective, power, and finally, boldness. The last thing we need is boldness. Now, I find it <laughs> entirely fascinating that um, as we look into the prayer of these people as they are facing this opposition, the end of the prayer goes like this in verse 29 through 31. <clears throat> and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name uh, through the name of the holy of your holy servant Jesus and when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the holy spirit and continued to speak the word of god with boldness this is what astonishes me they did not ask for the opposition to be removed. Now, biblically speaking, there's nothing wrong with asking for the opposition to be removed. Half the stinking Psalms are about getting the opposition removed, okay? Paul prayed that uh, the uh, thorn would, would uh, be taken away from him. Jesus said, may this cup pass from me. But I, all of that, and here the church says, not take this cup away from me, but get, grant us boldness in the face of this opposition. They asked for boldness. And here's what, okay, as we go through the book of Acts, here's what you're going to see. <clears throat> that the one thing that always attends the filling of the Spirit is not tongues or miracles or anything like that. The one thing that always, everywhere, attends the filling of the Spirit is boldness for proclamation. We must have boldness. Um, so no matter how strong the opposition grew, there would, the, the reason why they asked for boldness is because no matter how strong this opposition grew, they wanted there to be a light in the darkness of this world. And brothers and sisters, they have passed the torch to us. And that mantle for proclamation falls to us. In this time and in this place, and if we don't carry the flame, who will? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Okay, we come to the table now. Um, huh. if, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, <clears throat> 
Paul gives us our longest exposition of what this means. And in it, he says that the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup, that when we do this, his words, we proclaim the saving death of our Lord until he comes. So there it is, something we actually don't have to use words for. But we do have to use words for it because right before that he says, he reminds them, the Corinthians, of what Jesus said about these words. He, he interprets this act for us. He says, this bread <clears throat> is my body, which is broken for you. And then he picks up the cup and he says, this cup is the blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Those words, this, our communal proclamation together, is why we come to this table. This is, this is one piece. We sit here in the middle of a time and a place, 2018, 1124, Roswell, Georgia. Here, we are proclaiming the saving death of our Lord Jesus by coming and participating in this bread, in this cup. Now, this is a meal, as we say every week, for those who have believed this, for those who have seen that Christ truly is the only name under heaven given by which any of us may be saved. If that's you, Well, you are most welcome. Come, enjoy the fruits of your Lord's work. Um, If that's that's not you, my first thing would be, will you believe? Is he awakening you right now? For all of your life, have you felt opposition to this, but for a moment right now, you're feeling perhaps open? That's the work of the Spirit. He is, he is awakening you so that you may come and join us at this table. All you must do is believe. We, we, we don't have like a whole structure for you. We, we don't have like words for you to say. All we know is if Christ has apprehended you, If he has awakened you, then you are most welcome at this table. Now, it's time to pray. And as we do, and as you come forward, give yourself into his hands. That's why we come. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we begin by thanking you. for opening the words uh, that you have preserved for us for all of these years. Um, We came hungry and you have nourished us. We came thirsty and you quenched our ravenous thirst. Father, as these words have been sown, it was our Lord Jesus who taught us that these words are not safe in our hearts. Um, Satan will come to steal them. Uh, Afflictions will come and 
show their weak roots. Father, if we are going to benefit from this at all, then you must help us. You must give us hearts that will bear fruit 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. Show us the people and the places um, to, to whom and, and for which you desire us to speak the name of Jesus, to witness to his resurrection, um, and grant us the boldness that we must have if we are going to carry your, um, your church and the message of your gospel forward. Now we love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You are invited to come.